Well, good morning, folks. I think we'll get started here. It's a snowy morning, so people will sort of be trickling in maybe a little bit late, but we'll get started just to try to stay on time. So upstairs here, again, just by way of uh, announcement, this is going to be class three of Christians in the Workplace. So this is, this is uh, what's going on in the, in the sanctuary this morning for Sunday School Hour. Again, in the Luther Hall, membership classes, downstairs guidance. So this is class three of Christians in the Workplace. Our title this morning is A New Boss, A New Boss. How Jesus' work changes our work. And I'm going to open in prayer, and then we'll get started. So why don't uh, you pray with me now? Father God, we praise you uh, for another uh, Lord's Day. Father, we praise you for the gift that these Lord's Days are, that we can gather together and worship you, our living triune God. Father, we just ask for safety on the roads, even as folks will be still making their way here and trickling in. Father, just prepare our hearts now, even for this Sunday school hour. We want to um, learn more about your good design in work, even in this uh, fallen world, and how you're in the business of working in us that which is pleasing to you, even uh, making us more like Christ uh, through our work. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, class three, a new boss, how Jesus changes our work. And if you haven't got a, a handout, I believe they're in the foyer. It's going to be helpful for you to be able to follow along this morning. So last week, we looked at the twin dangers as Jared Harfield walked us through, the twin dangers of being idle, that is I-D-L-E, in our work. When we lose sight of God's purposes uh, in our work, what, what is the purpose of it? The second idol was I-D-O-L, that is when we make work an idol, the sin of idolatry. So now this morning we're ready for the good news. So you can see, I mean even if you look at your, your hand out there, flip to the back, you can see the course outline. We're sort of moving into the second phase of this class. The first phase was the story of work. The second phase now is how our work is redeemed or our work as the redeemed. So this is, this is what we're going to be really zeroing in on this morning. The key truth that we're going to focus on today is that Jesus' work, that is his work of redemption, changes our work. So just to sort of wake you folks up, I'm going to throw this out there and maybe I'll just wait for one response. If there's a brave soul. What are some examples of how being a Christian has changed what you do at your job? So feel free, someone, to speak out. Taking responsibility for your mistakes. That's a good one. Maybe, maybe one, one other one. Say it again. More than just a paycheck. Okay. All right, so again, the, the, the twin dangers of being idle, that is I-D-L-E, and turning work into an idol are both distortions of work, 
uh, as we saw last week, as, as Jared led us through that. So again, just by way of brief review, we're idle because we've lost sight of work as worship. We idolize because we worship our work. So we'll look at these two more closely to work our way to our main point today. And again, the main point is that Jesus' work changes our work. So you can see on your handout there, I believe it should be there, you've got the Catholic distortion and the Protestant distortion. What does this mean? What is the Catholic distortion? Well, this is the danger of being idle, I-D-L-E, at work. And this has been called the Catholic distortion by some historians. And of course, we find this in its fullest expression through the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So back in the day, uh, Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea, wrote that there are two ways of life in the church, the perfect way and the permitted way. So we're going back to pre-Reformation. There's the perfect way or the perfect life and the permitted life. What does this mean? Well, the perfect life was reserved uh, and was considered sort of ultra-spiritual. The perfect life was reserved for the priests, the monks, and the nuns. So if you wanted to be a super-duper Christian, that is what you had to aspire to. That was the perfect life. What was the permitted life? Well, the permitted life was the secular life, the secular vocation. That was reserved for maids, soldiers, and kings. Or we could say for the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, right? Those were sort of the subpar vocations. It's not ideal, but yeah, it's permitted. So you're sort of a subpar Christian then at that point. So to put it a different way, it's not necessarily sinful to have a secular career, like say carpentry or law, but if you really want to please God you got to get into the, the um, sacred job, right? you got to go be a monk or something like that. And of course, this is, if you know anything about Martin Luther, that's exactly what he did. He wanted to try to make himself right with God, so he became a monk. Well, part of the Protestant Reformation then, as many of you will be aware, was recovering the biblical idea that work, any vocation, is worship. It is worship. This was the experience of William Wilberforce, many of you guys will recognize that name, who was largely responsible as an MP in the British Parliament for the abolition of, of the slave trade, the British Empire. So just consider this, immediately after Wilberforce's conversion, he thought that as a, as a Christian, to, to be a real committed Christian, he ought to enter into the ministry. He was actually very tempted to quit uh, his life in politics and do just that. Now, if you guys are familiar with uh, the hymn writer John Newton, Pastor John Newton, John Newton was Wil Wilberforce's spiritual mentor, and it was through Newton's influence on Wilberforce that he encouraged Wilberforce to stay in Parliament. He, uh, Newton encouraged him. He recognized um, Wilberforce's skill set and giftings, to stay where God has placed him and to use those abilities for the glory of God. And we can see, looking back now, we have the benefit of seeing the way the Lord used Wilberforce 
in Parliament for the abolition of the slave trade. So Wilberforce could say this in his journal after he was uh, looking back, being persuaded by John Newton. He said, quote, my walk is a public one. My business is in the world. And I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me, end quote. So Wilberforce could recognize that God had placed him in Parliament with the skill sets, the giftings, to be used for the glory of God in that setting, in that so-called, we could say, secular job. So if Wilberforce had left politics for the pulpit, he would have quit his post, we could say, that God had assigned to him. So our lives then are not divided into the the so-called secular and sacred like the Roman Catholic Church would still teach. All that we do has spiritual significance. So William Tyndale, uh, Bible translator into, in, into the English language, said this, quote, that if our desire is to please God, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word is all one, end quote. That's what Tyndale said. Luther said this, you might like this, in Luther's typical earthly style, he said, quote, God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. How's that for you dads with young ones? That God and the angels are smiling when you change a diaper. So remember, the danger of being idle isn't so much about a lack of activity as it is the lack of activity that matters to God. To avoid the idle pitfall, we need to see our work as an opportunity for worship. So we need to abolish the so-called sacred and secular divide in our minds when it comes to work. That's the Catholic distortion. So what is the Protestant distortion then? Didn't the Reformation fix the Catholic distortion? What took place? Well, the Reformation's recovery of work as worship eventually swung to another distortion. So historians have called this the Protestant distortion because it arose in Protestant-influenced cultures. So this is Os Guinness, historian Os Guinness. He says, quote, whereas the Catholic distortion is a spiritual form of dualism, elevating the spiritual at the expense of the secular, the Protestant distortion is a secular form of dualism, elevating the secular at the expense of the spiritual. So it's a flip-flop. The early reformers didn't have this error, if you read guys like Luther and so on. But in later generations, the celebration of the spirituality of our work became imbalanced. So Osgenes again puts it like this, quote, eventually the day came when faith and calling were separated completely. The original demand that each Christian should have a calling was boiled down to the demand that each citizen should have a job. And I would suggest that this is very much the air that we breathe in our day. So the president, American president from 1923 to 1929, that's Calvin Coolidge, once declared, quote, the man who builds a factory builds a temple. The man who works there worships there. That's the Protestant distortion. 
This, of course, is the danger of making work into an idol. That is the idolatry of work. It bec- work in and of itself becomes worship rather than worshiping God through your work. So falling into this trap, we can relate maybe to the writer of Ecclesiastes when he says in chapter 2, for a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. This is the end of everyone uh, who makes work into an idol. So when we divorce work from worship, any meaning we feel in our work is illusory and we will ultimately be disappointed. So what's our calling as Christians then? What's our calling as Christians? Well, the main point here is that we need to keep our work connected to worship and worship connected to God. So to understand this better, we're going to introduce the terminology. Many of you are going to be familiar with this this terminology of calling or the term vocation. So the term vocation is simply a transliteration of the Latin word um, calling, the Latin word calling, to call. That's what we mean by vocation. So vocation, calling, that's essentially synonymous and we're going to be dealing with those terms in this lesson. So, so we're, we're, I believe you can see, yeah, on your handout, you've got primary calling and secondary calling. So this is going to be a helpful sort of way to walk through this term of calling or vocation. So what is our primary calling? Our primary calling is that call we receive when God calls us in Scripture to Christ through the gospel, that is, the call to be saved. The call to be saved. So Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, Os Guinness uh, has uh, a good working definition of the primary calling. He says, quote, our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. By him, to him, and for him. So we are called by Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. He called you to this salvation through our gospel so that you may possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's because God has called you by his power through the gospel. This is not your own doing. So you're called by Christ. You're also called to Christ, Romans 1, 6. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. So the emphasis there is you are Christ's possession. If you're a believer this morning, you are Christ's possession. You have been called to Christ. And the believer is also called for Christ, Ephesians 2. For we were God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you can see the emphasis there is what we have been called for. We have been called for good works. So what is God's 
primary calling then. He's calling you to himself to be saved from your sins, to bear witness to his glory. So if we're going to avoid the twin dangers of idol, I-D-L-E, idol, I-D-O-L, we must remember that our primary calling is to God and for God. So just as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 33. So that's our primary calling. But what is our secondary calling? I know you guys can see where we're going here. God, believe it or not, has actually called his people, even as individuals, uh, to certain vocations, as it were. To certain vocations. We can see part of this in Ephesians 2, uh, which I just quoted. We are called to God unto salvation that we might do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So just consider your work right now. Whatever it is you're doing, believe it or not, God in his providence has put you in that place to be doing that work. It's not some type of mistake. He has you there for a reason. Even the work in and of itself. So in other words, God calls us to salvation that we might take part in his grand plan to show his glory off to the watching world. And he does that First of all, by means of saving you, but then by sending you out and giving you a job to do, whatever it may be, right, to show off his glory in the workplace. So these secondary callings then, that is of, of making money, or maybe even not, right, being a student, being a stay-at-home mom, even being retired, Believe it or not, some people are actually called at times to be unemployed. You say, how does that work? Well, God is sovereign over being unemployed. Is he not? You could even say that is your calling at that point. Now, obviously, you want to be endeavoring to find a job, right? If you're in a position of responsibility and so on, to be caring for others. You need to be looking for a job. Um... But all of these things fall under sort of the umbrella of secondary calling. So the key truth we need to understand here is that all of our secondary callings exist to support our primary, our primary calling. So whatever you do, Paul says, Colossians 3, 22 to 24, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So the Catholic distortion then, to, just to recap, that is idleness, comes when we ne neglect the fact that our secondary callings actually support our primary calling. That's by God's design. There's not a hierarchy of status based on your job before the Lord. The Protestant distortion, that is idolatry, comes when our secondary callings become an end in and of themselves. And I would suggest, again, that in our culture, uh, typically what you're going to see is more of the Protestant distortion. Maybe that's something that you struggle with. So is there any questions at this point? I want to be careful because I want to be done on time, but maybe one question, then we can move on. Alan?
Yeah, so the Protestant distortion is essentially making work in and of itself worship with no real meaningful reference to um, working as unto the Lord. So I quoted uh, President Calvin Coolidge who said, when you build a temple, or sorry, when you build a factory, you're building a temple. Um, so it's, it's basically making, making an idol out of work, right? Work becomes sort of the all-consuming um, end of all things. And, and, and you're finding sort of all of your, your hope and satisfaction in that. Yeah, I mean, so it's a situation like that, being called to a job where um, you've, you recognize that it is the Lord who's put you there, but then maybe, there, so, so would you, does it feel like maybe there's, there's conflicting, um, uh, you're conflicted about how, how best to use your time, as it were. I mean, I, I would suggest maybe at this point, um, if there aren't children in the home and so on, well, Generally speaking, you're, you are going to be, be able to have more time probably to work. But then obviously in, in your situation, you definitely want to be focusing on the relationships that you have in your life as well, right? Like your marriage and so on. You could certainly feel free to come talk to me after. But I'll, I'm going to move on here. Okay. So Jesus' work changes everything. So to make this practical now, we're going to think uh, through our work in light of Jesus' work. So what is Jesus' work? Well, Jesus' work is the work of redemption. You remember in the first week, we sort of did a biblical theology of work. We started with creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So Jesus is in the business of redemption and restoration. Jesus came to pay the debt that we owe. So as rebel sinners, we're, we're amassing massive amounts of debt. Again, speaking, out, out, if, if you're outside of Christ, as a rebel sinner before the Lord, you're amassing massive amounts of debt which you cannot pay back. And even trying to figure out how to pay him back, what you're doing is you're actually working um, overtime against him. You're working overtime against him. In other words, there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to pay the debt to God that you owe for your sin. The good news is that Jesus took that debt upon himself. This is good news. He lived the life we have failed to live, the perfectly righteous, God-pleasing life we have failed to live, and he died the death that we deserve. This is work that is, that is unique to Christ, to the God-man. It's not work that we can do. So he died the death that we deserve and he rose victorious over the grave to show that his work was accepted by the Father. So that work that he did changes everything about our callings in life. How? 
Well, you can see on your handout now, we're going to be moving towards Jesus' work changes everything. So we work for a new master. We work for a new master. Once we were slaves to sin, and the Bible does use that term, slaves, slaves to sin, the same term is in place. However, we are now slaves to a different master, slaves to righteousness, Romans 6, 18. So where we once pursued the passions of the flesh and the praise of men, we now pursue Christ. That's why Paul, again, can say in Colossians 3, whatever you do, it is to the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. So let's just pause there and just consider how mind-blowing this actually is. Your job, whatever it is, your, your boss is Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who you're working for. So again, when you're changing a diaper, dads, who are you serving? It's Jesus. When you're writing a memo, who are you serving? Jesus. When your earthly boss doesn't appreciate your work and you don't get that promotion that maybe actually you might be the right person for, who are you working for? Ha- has your real boss failed you at that point? Well, no, he hasn't. He, he, he knows what he is doing. And so in everything we do, we're working for Jesus. That is, we work for a new master. Second, we have a new assignment. When we work for Jesus, what is his goal for us? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. This is one of those incredible, all-encompassing verses. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So again, job one for you and me and our jobs is to show off how amazing God is for his glory. Now, our circumstances are going to vary depending on our callings. Whether you're flying a spaceship or you're playing um, stuffed animals with your daughter or you're teaching a class at church, your ultimate assignment is always the same, to show off the glory of God. So thinking more nearly about the workplace, no matter what you do for a living, you are working something, you are working for something different than the non-Christians around you, right? Your assignment is different. So yes, money is important. Yes, it's, it's necessary for life. Yes, career advancement can be good. It's not necessarily wrong or sinful. Yes, you want to help your boss, that is your earthly boss, and do a good job. There is a very real sense in which you answer to your earthly boss. And we all have to answer to somebody. But ultimately, you're in your job so that you can glorify God. This is your new assignment. So there's one critical thing, one, one critical fact that can bring this into focus. This is very important as well. God does not need you. <laughs> God doesn't need you. Now, in, th- that might sound offensive to our modern sensitivities. We're, we're constantly being puffed up, right? And being told how incredible and awesome we are. 
Well, it's actually a relief. <laughs> it's a relief to know that God doesn't need you. Anything that we do, he can do better. He can do better. Sometimes we can confuse the idea of working for Jesus with thinking that somehow he needs our work. I think this can actually be a very real temptation, particularly maybe in the ministry. It's simply not true. Psalm 50 verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So it's very important. We need to remember that God is not lacking in any way, shape, or form. We're not filling any type of need or void in God. This is a good thing. So question then, if he can do it better, well, why does he give us our callings, our secondary callings? Well, it's because God's ultimate aim, again, is not our productivity. It's our worship. It's our worship. It's not getting things done, but showing off who he is. Our secondary callings all make sense when we realize that we're, and, and we're working um, in proper accordance to our primary calling, and that is to glorify God. This is why, I mean, the emphasis, you, you hear it over and over again, the, the, the emphasis of work as worship. Work as worship. Worship is the response of the moral creature to the creator. So as 21st century evangelicals, we can get messed up with this because we think of worship as simply what we're going to be doing shortly in, in, during the main service. Maybe in particularly just the singing of the songs, right? And that is worship, right? We will be singing, um, we will we'll be singing praise in worship to our God. But all of our lives, whether whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it doesn't mean then that you stop on the factory floor, you stop production and start um, singing praises to God, right, out loud. <laughs> Because this is what you're called to do. No, it's, it's in that context, it's through your work that you're worshiping God. It's through your work. So again, let's, let's circle back around to Colossians 3. Working hard as unto the Lord. And how is that worship? Well, working hard for Jesus shows that he is worthy of hard work. Beyond that, the only reason you want to work for him is because of the new hearts that you have received in Christ. So your desire to work hard is showing off the work that God is doing in you. You're being changed. You're being made to see. Um, and others are being made to see around you. Yeah, this person, he, he or her is changing. There's something different about them. So what this means then is Christ's reputation, as it were, is, is being displayed because he's the one working in you that which is pleasing to him. So Christ's reputation is on the line, as it were, not, not, not in a risky sense, right? 
Um, but it is, in a sense, because his, his, his work in you is being displayed to the watching world. So when you're known as a hard worker, you better his reputation then. Or to quote uh, Paul's words in Titus 2, you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And of course, the opposite can also be true. Um, the nations will, the, the nations blaspheme God because of poor Christian witness, right? This is w- something that you see throughout the Old Testament with sinful, idolatrous I- Israel. Without God's grace, we certainly go there as well. So you have a new boss, Jesus, and a new assignment to worship him in our work. But third, we also have new hearts. We also have new hearts. There's perhaps nothing more deflating uh, in the workplace than being given an assignment and not being given the proper tools or resources or perhaps training to be able to accomplish that job. Earthly bosses will do that sometimes, right? It's not so with Jesus. He's not calling you to an assignment that he will not equip you for, that he won't give you the tools and the resources that you need to carry it out. So in other words, Jesus is the best boss. He is the best boss. He's unlike any other boss you've ever had. Just consider this New Covenant promise from Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. Notice who's doing the action here. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So that heart of flesh is a heart that now loves God and loves others. That's the good work that God is doing in you if you're a believer here. And it's his work. I just remind us as well of, um, I believe it's Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right? On the day of Christ Jesus. So Jesus doesn't set us up for failure then, in other words. This isn't like one of those, I, I can remember when I was traveling in, in Southeast Asia, uh, and probably f- 15 years ago now, in the Buddhist culture, um, I, I, I was amazed to see the massive amount of infrastructure in Thailand that has been abandoned because the economics failed at that point. And so you have these massive structures. You have, you have um, elevated freeway systems. We're talking about billions of dollars of concrete has, has been put into the city of Bangkok, for example. Even abandoned high-rises and hotels. And in the Buddhist culture, um, it's considered bad luck uh, to go back to some type of project like that. So for example, if an American developer was to go buy one of these abandoned apartment buildings or hotel buildings, no one would go to it anyways. The Thai people wouldn't touch it. That's bad luck. You don't, you don't go there, right? This isn't the work that Jesus um, is engaged in with us. He's not setting us up for failure. He's not giving us a task that's just, oh, well, sorry, we need to abandon that. Take two. That's not, that's not the way Jesus works. 
So we ought to be then growing in confidence and trust in our Lord. He will not let you fail his assignment for you. You may fail at your job sometimes, right? We all have. But he's not going to fail at his assignment for you. His work will not fail. So just think about your own job then, whatever it may be. Your, your art may never hang in a museum. You might actually never get that promotion, right? You might not. But Jesus' plan for your work will come to absolutely perfect fruition. The portrait that he is painting through you, as it were, for his glory will come about. He is not frustrated um, in his efforts, as we often are with our, with our uh, limitations. So having been given a new heart, then, that loves God and loves people, he will bring you to a place where you can be content in whatever station he has put you in. And that certainly is a mark of Christian maturity, isn't it? Paul could say that he's learned the secret of being content no matter the situation. No matter the situation. So we have new hearts. Last, we have new rewards. So what are you working for? Is it money, power, fame, comfort, a school building named after you? In Canada here, they're going to change the name after a couple decades anyways, right? A house at the beach, helping lots of people, right? These things, you know, it, the, the motivation can look good. Oh, I just want to help lots of people. I want to change the world. Or maybe it's all about fully realizing your potential. Well, the rewards Jesus provides are far greater than anything that the world offers, they last forever. They last forever. All of this stuff on, on this earth is going to rust and melt, right? So consider what Paul says to the slaves in Colossians 3 again. Why does he tell them to work with sincerity of heart as for the Lord and not for men? Well, it's because they know that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance of your reward. So if that's true, and it is, then no vacation house can compete with this reward. It's an eternal inheritance. So there's no greater reward in the universe than what Jesus gives to those who work for him. And that doesn't, again, it doesn't matter what your job is, what, what the perception of value or worth in the world's eyes. Jesus is the boss, and he gives the reward. So once you accept this truth and believe it, it begins to change the way you approach your work. So you no longer do your job to provide, to, to seek to, you're seeking for your job to provide you with ultimate rewards. Well, that's something that your job cannot bear. Your job wasn't created to be able to do that. Only God was. Only God is. I should just say, of course, God is not created. He is the uncreated one. But only God can bear the weight of giving the rewards that you desire. Or maybe even the rewards you don't desire, but the best rewards. So you're free then from idolizing work to make it an arena 
then for loving God and loving others. You're free from the trap of idleness, from growing frustrated and bitter in the drudgery that your job brings. Now, I was just going to share a little tiny story here that happened this past week, and I was very thankful to the Lord that I was preparing, basically just going through this material this week in, in preparation for this Sunday. I've been working on a job uh, down in Arrowwood, so it's a long drive. I've been working on this job for about a month, over the past three or four months. So it's been a big job, and I think I've been finding out that I sort of underbid the job. So if you're a contractor out there, you know what that is like. For the, fa- for the last maybe week or so, it's like, okay, I don't think I'm making much money anymore. <laughs> I'm still paying my employee, but I'm here, we need to get it done. Well, this bathroom, here's a lovely thought on a Sunday morning. This bathroom has a macerating toilet. A macerating toilet, what's that? Well, it has a, a grinder pump underneath the toilet that grinds everything up and discharges it into a discharge pipe to where actual plumbing is. So you use this toilet in, a, in an application where there is no plumbing. I couldn't smash up the floor to put plumbing in in this situation. Well, we're setting this toilet, my employee and I, and it sort of slips a little bit and it cracks. This isn't a $250 toilet. This is a $1,500 toilet. And this is my last day on the job. I'm, I'm excited to be done, to get the paycheck, and crack the $1,500 toilet. So now I've got to figure out how to replace this thing. Well, all that's to say, the reason I bring it up is, again, I was thankful to the Lord (laughs) that even in his providence, he had me um, preparing this lesson. Because, again, even in the midst of the the frustration, the toil, the futility of it all, it's not about me making big, super-duper money and looking like an incredible plumber, right? And even my response... In that moment, the home builder I work for, my employee, and others are watching. So I had to ask God for the grace to respond well. So your happiness is secured elsewhere. You don't need your job to make you happy. And again, ultimately, it won't. Like I said before, your job is not designed to bear that weight. Only God can bear that weight. So knowing that you work for King Jesus and not for men changes the way you approach your job. You have a new master, a new assignment, new hearts, and new rewards, all because of Jesus. So this is not a series of bulletproof points to pull out of your mental wallet here and there. Again, this is a whole new way of thinking. This This is the Christian lifestyle, as it were. And it is an eternal perspective. Well, we're going to move on. There's, a, there's one more section um, we're going to uh, work through here. You can see in your handout, and that's the freedom of working for Jesus. The freedom of working for Jesus. So first of all, you can see freedom to trust. Freedom to trust. The workplace is a place of worry. The workplace is a place of worry. And if you don't think it is, well, you're probably lying. As, as someone who works for Jesus, you have freedom to trust God instead of giving in to worry. 
We don't trust Jesus for the future simply because he's a really smart career planner. We trust Jesus because he's in control. He's in control. So think about a worry then. So this is a bit of a, a mental exercise. Think about a worry that you have at work right now. So not a hypothetical one, a real concrete worry that you have right now. We're going to sort of analyze this a little bit. Consider if that fear or that worry actually came true in your job. So you can feel your blood pressure rising. So here's where we consider these truths from Scripture. God is in control, right? We talk about God's sovereignty around here. That means he's in control of your job, every detail, even perhaps of allowing that fear to come true. So God's promised to use everything for our good and his glory. In other words, the only reason he would allow that fear to come true is because, believe it or not, you might not recognize it, he actually has good purposes for you in allowing that to come true. Right? So God loves you. He's committed to you. He is committed to you to work in you that which is pleasing to him. And again, his reputation is at stake in it, so he will surely make it come to pass. And again, Jesus is your ultimate boss. No, so no circumstance in your life will ever surprise him or keep him from accomplishing his purpose in you. So this is the way we're, we're, we're tempted sometimes to combat worry in the workplace. We'll say things like, oh, it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, I, I don't really care. If this sale falls through, uh, no big deal, right? Well, in a sense, uh, thing, say, saying things like that, um, I mean, it could be true. The sale ultimately doesn't really matter, but there is a better way. Your work does matter, but for different reasons than the work idolizer thinks. So it matters to God because of what it says to the world and to you about him. That's why your work matters. So God's going to accomplish his purposes regardless of your bottom line then. So when you're feeling anxious or preoccupied with the future, take a walk, grab a coffee, sit still for a moment. Remember that God is in control. He's not getting frustrated like you are, like you might be. Let Jesus be the anchor of your soul. So that's the first point, freedom to trust. Second, freedom to rest. Proverbs 23, verse 4. This is a good um, verse for the city of Calgary. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Hold on a second. I thought wisdom is to make us rich. No, no, no. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Rest is a good thing. What does rest do? 
it reminds us that we're finite, weak, needy creatures. And it reminds us that God is, is the infinite one. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing one. And rest reminds us to even enjoy the fruit of our labors. So God knows our limits then, and believe it or not, he actually designed them. God designed your limits. And I, w- I want to get real um, concrete here again, because we can just think about this in the abstract. God designed your limits, right? Your limitations, your weaknesses that you're experiencing right now, today, whatever it is, this next week, last week, right? So what, what, what is the limitation that you're feeling right now? Just recognize God designed that. <laughs> he designed it. It's for your good. It's for his glory. And part of what it's doing is reminding you to rest. It doesn't all depend on you. It depends on him. So if we really understand that our assignment is main, mainly about showing off who God is in our work rather than accomplishing specific things in our work, what would change then? What would change in your thinking? Would you still burn the candle at both ends? Would you still curse your need for sleep each night? Maybe not everyone does that, but probably some here do. You just don't feel like there's enough hours in the day, right? Well, recognizing these truths uh, gives you freedom to rest. Third, it gives you freedom to serve. Um, There is no truly altruistic person in the workplace. That is, no one goes to work with a primary agenda of simply doing good for others. While being grounded in your identity in Christ, in, in this biblical understanding of work, you can actually be freed to be looking out for the interests of others. Obviously, you need to take care of your responsibilities, right? But you're actually freed then to, to uh, buy that person coffee or have lunch with them or help them with a task at work, whatever it might be. You're free to serve. You can be a servant at work. So one thing to consider then, uh, build time into your work schedule to help a coworker or customer, perhaps even beyond what is required. So you're free to serve. I need to continue to move on. Fourth, freedom to excel. So how many of us, how many of you um, got into the workforce to pursue mediocrity? Maybe, maybe you did, I don't know. But just think of it this way, how many children, how many, you know, how many children, how many boys pursue being a firefighter? The four-year-old boy is going to pursue being a firefighter with mediocrity or an NHL player or whatever it may be, right? How many college students want to be mediocre engineers? I mean, maybe in our day, some. <laughs> but you can see the point. And, and yet, this world is full of mediocre workers. Why? Well, again, the motivation, right? The, 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 the motivation for a worker to be excellent in their work is not, 
in our fallen state, we do not have that hardware. We do not have that hardware. It's through recognizing these gospel truths that we recognize that we can pursue excellence in our work. So, so, so again, then, I mean, it's important maybe to just to recognize, okay, I, I, I'm free uh, in Christ. My identity is in Christ. Therefore, the actual sort of outcome of my work isn't that big of a deal. Well, no, that's, that's not right at all. That's not right at all. Um, the cause is the glorification of God and yet pursuing excellence in work, right, will bring glory to God. It will. Proverbs 22 verse 29 tells us this. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. So skilled work, then, we could say led to majestic service in this sense. So you think of, of um, characters like Daniel, Nehemiah, Mordecai, who are working for a king. So just consider, again, we work for the king of kings and the lord of lords. So what that should do, then, is it, is it, should, um, it should change our attitude, our motivation, our energy, to actually be doing skilled work, to be doing skilled work in whatever the Lord has given us. In Christ, then, you are free to pursue excellence. I'm going to close here. We're going to talk about joy to close. I said in the first week that work in a fallen world is toilsome, can often feel fruitless, and it's compulsory, and yet as redeemed people working for our Redeemer, we can have true joy in our work. How? Well, because even as the earthly fruits of our labor decay around us, our work is accomplishing something that is eternal and will never fade. It is showing off the glory of our Lord. So even if nobody notices that you're working your hardest, your work has eternal significance because of him, because of the work that he's doing in you, to make him more, to make you look more like Christ. And again, in, if in the world's eyes your work doesn't have significance, just consider this, the psalmist, Psalm 84, verse 10. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So true joy in your work will flow from your joy in Jesus. Grow then in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will grow in your joy in work. Um, I don't think we have time for questions, unfortunately, this morning. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get ready for the main service. If you have questions, certainly feel free to come, up, to come up to me at some point. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, uh, hope and pray that this has been helpful uh, for us this morning, Lord, that we would go to our jobs, whatever it may be. Um, even this coming week, Lord, recognize that we work as unto you, that you are committed to working in us that which is pleasing to you. Father, would you show off your glory to the watching world, even as you take a weak, finite sinners and save them and redeem them and equip them for a good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So help us to walk in these, uh, looking to Christ, 
with the eyes of faith, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.